beginning a four-week study in 2 Peter. Why 2 Peter? Well, it's a short book that can be reasonably explained and applied in four weeks. But more than that, 2 Peter uses Jude. And since we are going through Jude in the worship service, I thought, well, how about let's complement Jude with 2 Peter. And 2 Peter uses Jude primarily in the second chapter, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. So this morning, we are looking at just the first 15 verses of 2 Peter 1, but I will read all of the, the first chapter. So hear the word of God. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this, re- for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as, a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Father in heaven, we come before you with humility. We thank you that you have given us your word through your servant here, Peter. We pray that we would glean from this inspired text what you would have us to know. Pray that it would also be... Uh, immediately applicable to our lives. Pray that we would also glorify you as we 
think clearly about, uh, about what your word has to say here, Lord. We do thank you for this time that we have this morning. Commend it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you didn't get a handout, there is one back there. So the context of the letter, this is the second letter that Peter has written to the recipients. And how do we know this? Well, 3.1 says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So we know this is the second letter that Peter wrote because he says this is the second letter he wrote. Now, that sounds so obvious and so unobjectionable. But the reality is, people have questioned Petrine authorship. In other words, they they have questioned Peter as the author of this letter. They, of course, disregard then the very first words that come out of his pen, Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. They must be thinking that someone used his name to provide some credibility to this letter. And, of course, they don't acknowledge the event that Peter himself speaks of as an eyewitness, the transfiguration, something we'll look at in detail next week in verses 16 through 21. He speaks about how he was on the mountain where Christ was transfigured. But this is written by Peter. He has told us that. This is um, the kind of stuff that comes up in theological debates when you read about things in commentaries and seminary. Well, Paul certainly didn't write this letter because it just didn't sound like him or it was so um, contrary to his theology. Well, but the letter does say, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This letter does say, Peter. One of the reasons people would offer for rejecting Peter as the author is the vocabulary is just so different from 1 Peter and 2 Peter. If you read 1 Peter, you know that's, that's, that's written by an uneducated man. Because Peter was an uneducated man. Though he was schooled by Christ. And when you come to 2 Peter, well, the, the language there is, is a much better Greek than you get in 1 Peter. These arguments are weak at best. Certainly, people have different vocabulary for different purposes for different letters. You read 1 John, you read Revelation, same author, but different emphasis in each of these, different vocabulary. You wouldn't say, well, John didn't write 1 John because he wrote Revelation, and there's really no apocalyptic imagery in 1 John. What's that all about? Different style for a different occasion? I'm not going to belabor this point, okay? You guys, you see that the infallible, inspired word of God says, Simeon Peter. And you see the mention of the transfiguration, and you see in 3.1, this is now the second letter I'm writing. It's very clear that Peter had written this letter. He writes it from Babylon, from Rome then, 
We know this from 1 Peter 5, 13. And if this is the second letter that he's writing to these people, he doesn't, in this second letter, tell us the, the people that he's writing to, but if this is the second letter, then we go to the first letter to find out who he's writing to, and this is to the churches in Asia Minor, those most likely who were planted by Paul the Apostle. Churches in Pontus, in Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are the, these are the regions, these are the areas that uh, the Lord had blessed with churches through Paul's ministry, and Peter is uh, writing to them. And towards the end of this letter, Peter will refer to Paul's own ministry. Paul and Peter were, you could say, co-laboring for the same audience, for the benefit of the same audience. And I, I call this, I call uh, this letter Peter's Second Timothy. So Paul in Second Timothy is writing his final letter. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be poured out like a drink offering. And he gives the young minister, Titus, the, the essentials. He reminds them of the essentials. He reminds them of the authority of the Word of God, how it is God-breathed, and it is as such profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete for every good work. So Peter knows that he's, he's about to die. So what he says in verse 13, I, I think it right, as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So he knows that, when, uh, that the Lord's words to Peter in John 21 are about to be fulfilled. Remember, there's that interaction between Jesus and Peter uh, on the seashore when Peter, in John 21, says, well, what are you gonna, what's going to happen with this guy? Speaking of John. And Jesus says, don't worry about him. Okay, You have your plan. I mean, I have a plan for you and I have a plan for him. And you will go where uh, someone will take you and you won't have anything to say about it. And you will be lifted up. You will be crucified. So why is Peter writing this letter? Well, I've identified two purposes. The first is to remind these beloved saints to make their calling and election sure and to supplement their faith by, uh, with godly qualities. We see that in verse 10, for instance, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. We'll, we'll get at that in just a little bit. Another purpose is he seeks to warn these saints of the many false teachers and prophets among them, some of whom have been eating the Lord's Supper with the flock of God. And this uh, takes place most significantly in chapter 2 and then towards the in part of chapter 3 as well. And for those of you who had come in a little bit later, I mentioned why I chose Second Peter. It's because Second Peter uses Jude, and we're going through Jude in morning worship. So you'll see a lot of similarities between Second Peter 2 and, and Jude. I've given you just a, an outline of the letter there. We're looking again at 
outline A and B. There's a contrast between knowledge and myth in this letter. Hopefully, you've, you've, you already just got a, a sense of the emphasis on knowledge. As I, as I read the first chapter, there's a lot of instances of the word knowledge. He gives this opening and the exhortation to perfect their faith, and he gives a, a bit of a farewell in, first, uh, in verses 12 through 15. In verse 16 through 18, he speaks about the transfiguration, which some might view as a myth. But he says, no, we're not following cleverly devised myths. We, we have the transfiguration, but we have actually a more fully confirmed word than the transfiguration. More on that next week. Jesus' future coming is not a myth. A big, a big uh, objection that Peter addresses over and over in this short letter is whether or not Christ has already come. whether he, he will come. You can, uh, perhaps that objection resonates with, with you at times. Is this whole Christianity thing really going to pan out as, as prophesied? Will Christ really come again? Or has he already come and I missed it? These are questions that some of the saints have struggled with, and Peter wants us to be assured that the Lord will come. And we have not missed it. We must be committed to the teaching of Christ and not the teaching of the false prophets, which he details in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, the, end, the earth's end is not a myth. It's a lot of knowledge versus myth in these three chapters. Well, again, let's look at verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So what does verse 1 say about the standing of Peter's readers and, the standing, and his own standing? I have a lot of questions on my document, so... We're going we're gonna to interact here. I will force you. Yes, they have a faith that is of equal standing. Okay. So the apostles and the non-apostles share a common faith. So the apostles, like Paul and Peter, are on the same footing as those that the apostles write to. It's not to say that the non-apostles are apostles and that there's no distinction whatsoever, but there's a faith of equal standing. What does that mean? Well, it means that Paul is no better than anyone else. Paul is going to say, well, I'm the chief of sinners. Peter, likewise, knows his own imperfections. He knows his sins and yes, he was made an apostle, but there wasn't anything good in Peter that would draw uh, himself to, to Jesus. Jesus, you know, there's something really special about Peter. He has to be an apostle. Of course, we know that Peter, throughout Jesus' ministry, makes a lot of mistakes, and we applaud his courage. Sometimes 
his, um, his courage is not joined with uh, greater understanding, that the kind of understanding that he would get later on when Jesus restores him to service and uh, shows him what it is like to be a, a good shepherd. How can it be that the, the faith that Peter has, faith that Paul has, is of equal standing as your faith and, and my faith? If the answer does not lie in because Peter is inherently better or I am inherently worse, then where must the answer lie? Okay. Yes. That is correct. You cannot top the righteousness of Christ. So if the righteousness of Christ is the basis of our faith of the standing, which it is, then we are all unworthy servants. Notice this. It's a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Not by Peter's righteousness. If, if his standing is because of his own righteousness, then he would be wrong to, to say we're of equal standing. This faith that is once for all delivered to the saints that Jude speaks of, this faith is, um, is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, if that's the case, and it is, then how can grace and peace be multiplied to us? We'll have some steady time to reflect in the sermon this morning on the multiplication of grace and peace. That's something, of course, we should be marveling, how grace and peace be multiplied. But the question before you is, how can grace and peace be multiplied to us? It is a gift from God, yes. That is true. We multiply uh, as, as instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We show grace and peace to others. God works through us to bless others. Yes. Look at verse 2, the rest of that. To the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Yes. Okay. So the multiplication of grace and peace comes through in the knowledge of God. As I mentioned just a little bit ago, the emphasis in chapter 1 is on knowledge. So a lot of words, a lot of verses have knowledge in them. Peter wants to disabuse his readers of any kind of uh, mythical grounding for the faith. The, the faith that is of equal standing is by the righteousness of God. It is through knowledge. 
and knowledge assumes facts. This is a reliable foundation on which our faith is built and through which we have multiplication of grace and peace. So one implication or one application of this would be the more you know God through Jesus Christ, the more you will experience the grace and peace multiplied. Do you want more grace? Do you want more peace? Then know God. How will you know God? But through his word. We see already just a a beautiful reminder, and use the word reminder intentionally since Peter uses it, of knowing this. This is where you see grace and peace multiplied. He's going to talk about how this word is not produced by the will of man, but men spoke, they truly spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how you have grace and peace multiplied. Of course, the Spirit works through the word, but he works through your uh, knowing him. We don't want a a false peace, a a false um, sense of grace, false comfort. We want true grace, true peace built on a true foundation, a, the solid rock. And there's only one way to experience that. It is prayerfully submitting ourselves to his word, and the Spirit works through his word in us. Well, Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through which the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Whose divine power has granted to us all things? Well, who is divine? God, yes, okay. So you would be safe to simply say, well, God's power, God's divine power has granted to us all things. Okay? But it's all things that pertain to life and godliness. What kind of life does Peter have in mind here? So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What, is, what kind of life does he have in mind there? Is he, what was that? Eternal life. Eternal life, yeah. Okay, good. 
eternal life, which is the life to the Father, the way to the Father, the truth of the Father. Living before the Father's face. So, here we have a very important verse. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This points to the sufficiency of God's power for you to live. To live in, in that spirit of eternal life. To live in a manner that is pleasing to God. Now, I could camp out at this verse for the next eight weeks because this is a primary text on which um, our whole biblical counseling, uh, our counseling center is, is based. But it's not just for counseling, it's for discipleship. Counseling is just a, an intense, intensified form of discipleship. This is the Christian life. So, the question before us really is, do we believe this? Do we really believe that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness? Everything that we need to live rightly. Everything we need to follow Christ. We will eschew any kind of secular ideologies. We will throw out the window any kind of secular worldviews, way of understanding how to relate rightly to God and how to grow in godliness. Now, of course, this has so many different applications, so many um, implications as well. But Peter is telling you that you have literally all that you need right here as you go about the most important thing in your life, which is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's one thing to have all that we need. It's, of course, another to use the all that we have been given. So again, the push here is to avail ourselves of the very word of God, that we might know God, that we might experience grace and peace for living, for godliness. This means that God's word is relevant to you after 1215 on Sunday morning. And 7.30, 7.45 on evening worship days. It is relevant for you. It is not just relevant, it is essential for you as you try to relate to your spouse, as you seek a boyfriend or a girlfriend, as you seek a spouse, as you work in a secular environment, as you drive your vehicle on the road that is quite perilous, where everyone likes to run the red lights. Yes, the word of God is relevant for you then. 
and there. Because there's never a moment when we are not relating to God. We are, as Ligonier has, has, uh, has used, we are living Coram Deo, before the face of God. We don't have a moment off. We are always his creatures. Therefore, we are always called upon by God to live according to that life that he has given us. Therefore, we must, we absolutely depend upon a source for wisdom, for guidance. And that is knowledge of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I'll say no more about that for now. Notice also, from verses 3 and 4, the emphasis on the gift. This all-sufficient grace of knowledge is granted. His divine power has granted to us all things. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. In yeah. So right there, this knowledge, which is emphasized in this chapter in verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 8, verse 12, just in this first little section, Five times, knowledge is mentioned. And then it's also mentioned in 120 and then in 220. So in a short letter like this, we have Peter emphasizing knowledge. But this knowledge is granted to us. What does that, what does that mean? If this knowledge is granted to us, Did you bestow this knowledge upon yourself? Good for you. You did it. If it is granted, then it is a gift. And you're not the giver of the gift. It's not like, you know, if you come in some extra money, I think I'm going to get myself something, you know, get myself something nice, get a nice dress, get, you know, you know, collection of uh, some Puritan work. That's what you want to get, right? Stephen Charnock's five you know, volumes. Okay. We're not getting ourselves this gift. We are given it. We are graced it. Again, Peter leads with grace. We see this perfectly in line with may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This grace of knowledge is a gift from God. What then ought our posture to be? How should we relate to others when we have come to this knowledge of Jesus Christ? Humbly, yes. Our posture should be one of humility.
You cannot have an ounce of pride in you if you are going to emphasize these doctrines of grace. What did you contribute? Nothing. Well, I guess one thing. You contributed your sin, which really isn't a contribution, but a a demerit. This also then means that if we pray for those who have not yet been granted this knowledge, we know that um, God works through means. We know that God works through the proclamation of the gospel. We must proclaim. We also know that a proclamation alone is not sufficient. We also know that the person using his faculties of reason will not, apart from the Spirit, come to the knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ unless it has been granted him. So we pray then for the Lord to do a work in his life. Oh, Lord, grant him faith. In Philippians 2, Paul says that it was granted for you not only to believe, but to suffer. There are two gifts there. We'll take one of them, but we'll like to not have the other one. I don't want the suffering. I'll take the belief. I'll take the trust. Both are gifts. Trusting in the Lord is a gift. It has to be granted. So we have to pray that it would be granted. Because we are totally depraved, as we saw last week. And that total depravity doesn't simply mean, yeah, he's a sinner. We're sinners. It means that because we are sinners, we are totally unable to come to Christ. We have to be drawn. It has to be granted to us to believe. It's a gift. Why? That the man of God may not boast, or that he would boast only in the Lord. And of course, Peter knew this intimately, didn't he? He knew, he knew being, being called uh, by his Savior. He knew that he did not contribute anything but his imperfections in the life of, of Jesus. And he knew that even, even after Jesus was raised from the dead, he had to be restored. The restoration had to be a gift from the Savior because he had betrayed Jesus three times. Peter leads with grace because that's the, the way God operates with grace. But as I've already said, this is not simply a, a passive approach. Yes, we do. We are granted grace. But the question is, what do we then do with this grace? We have been given the Bible. What then do we do with the Bible? Well, we read the Bible. We study the Bible. We prayerfully submit to the Bible. We try to practice these things, which is what Peter is encouraging his readers to do, is to practice them, is to make their calling and election sure. But before we see that exhortation, he is still leading with just how gracious God has been by giving precious and very great promises. He doesn't detail what those precious and very great promises are. But can you think of some? Can you think of some precious promises from the Lord 
some very great promises from the Lord. Everlasting life. Everlasting life. Yes. What a... You just went with the big one, didn't you? <laughs> Everlasting life. Peace. Promises you peace. Yes. Promises you forgiveness. What was that? A place in heaven. Yes. That is coming back. That's very uh, uh, Petrine there. Well done. That's a really good promise that Peter's readers needed to, needed to hear. It's coming back. Of course, our God is a promise-making God and promise-keeping God. We, we saw that all the way from Genesis 3.15. I don't have time to chart for you all of the covenantal promises, but we did a team group, didn't we? And that was good. We put it on the, the blank wall, no, no markers. I just used my hand, and so here's the here's Genesis 3.15, here's the Noahic covenant, Abrahamic, and, and on and on. But at every point, God is making promises. And the, is, the essence of every one of those promises is, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Grace. Now, he says that we might become partakers of the divine nature. So verse 3, his divine power is granted us all things. And verse 4, by grace we would become partakers of the divine nature. This verse is heavily relied upon by many in Eastern Orthodox Church and by um, Prosperity preachers to argue, uh, and, and Mormons, um, and to argue that we become gods. Did you know that? We become gods. We partake in the divine nature. We share in the stuff of divinity. And slowly, we become more and more God. We have the seed of God in us, which then grows into full divinity. That really seems to strip divinity of its nature, doesn't it? Grow in divinity. You will always be a creature. You will never know all things. You will never be omniscient. You will never be omnipresent. You will never be all-wise. You will never be omnipotent, all-powerful. Why? Because those are, as uh, theologians call, incommunicable attributes. Those are attributes of God that he does not share with his creatures. Because they are by nature creatures. They are by nature created. They're not the creator. We will never become God. And what is he getting at here? If we become partakers of the divine nature. Receive the Holy Spirit through the gift of God in Jesus Christ. And with that, we're being conformed 
Yes, there it is. We become more like Jesus. As the Spirit indwells us, empowers us to live, as God has, through his divine power, granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, then what will happen is we will become more like God, as as far as uh, his uh, communicable attributes are concerned, as far as loving and and justice and, and, and purity devotion. We will become more like Christ. We will, as Paul says, be conformed to the image of the Son. That's what it means. And we can only partake of this divine nature through the Spirit. That's a very important role that the Spirit has in the believer's life. By the way, after 2 Peter, uh, Connor Aubrey and I are going to do a six or seven uh, lesson series on Holy Spirit. So that'll be fun. Okay. This all-sufficient grace is given to enjoy the divine nature. It's also given to escape. Not escape the divine nature, of course. But to escape the corruption that is in this world, as in the world because of sinful desire. So, what we have here is leaving the former life. Peter has a lot to say about this former life. Verse 9, he says, Forever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So this grace is given to us, not that we would go on sinning, as Paul would say, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Meganoita! May may it ever be, if God forbid, that you would be given grace to abuse grace, to live uh, in a manner that is unworthy of the calling, that you live like a sinner. No, this is grace to escape the ways of your former life. And do we not need this grace? We are so entrenched in our former ways at times. Oh, the Lord sometimes graciously breaks us from uh, that wicked lifestyle, and we don't even have a thought to return to it. But that is not the case for everyone, and it's certainly not the case for every sin in everyone. We have besetting sins. We have temptations to return to the former life. And the false teachers were... um, we're returning to that former life. They would say that they are saved, but Paul or Peter says that they're like um, a dog that returns to its vomit. And our sin is vomitous. It is disgusting. And we cannot extricate ourselves, we cannot remove ourselves from this former life by ourselves. We then depend upon the grace of God that empowers us to live and to be godly. All the way. It's grace from start to finish. We must disabuse ourselves of this idea that we are saved by grace, and then God did his part. Now for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever years, I'm going to make it up, I have to make it on my own as a way of showing gratitude to God for so great a gift. No, that's not... That's not the way of the Savior. It is 
every day, moment by moment, dependent upon the grace of God to uh, become more like Jesus and to escape the things that Jesus died for. Why would we return to the very thing for, for which Christ was crucified? So because of God's grace, we are exhorted then to be holy. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith. with Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Perhaps the fruit of the Spirit, uh, perhaps you see some of the fruit of the Spirit here. So, in supplementing our holiness, are we adding to God's work of salvation? No? Okay. Then what are we doing? What is Peter calling us to do? He's calling us to be more like Christ. Always and ever fueled by the grace of the Spirit, the divine power, we do not add to God's work of salvation, but as Paul will say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you know what the next thing, next line is after he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Knowing that it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So there it is. God is working in you, and then you work, you work out what God is working in. You depend upon the grace of God, and then you seek to follow Jesus. And never is your obedience cause for pride, cause for um, humble bragging or, or whatever. It's, it's always call a cause for praise to God. We don't need to be ashamed that we bear fruit. We ought to be ashamed if we don't bear fruit. We bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We, there is a distinction between the godly and the ungodly, and the godly are attached to the vine. They bear fruit. But that fruit bearing is only because of the vine. It's only because God has worked in you you would then work out, that you would demonstrate fruit. So Peter is saying, y'all could do with more steadfastness, with more self-control, with more gentleness, with more brotherly affection, with more virtue, with more knowledge. And you have everything you need right here. So depend upon the grace of God that you might grow to be more like Jesus. And this holiness leads to fruitfulness. If these qualities, verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, then by using them, by uh, supplementing your faith, you will become effective and fruitful. Holiness then bears fruit. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my suggestions, commandments. 
The law of God has three uses, and we'll look at all of these uh, next year. Uh, But the third use is as a rule of life. We follow God's law. We We seek to be holy as he is holy. Because God has given us his word as a, as a guide to, to live in a way that uh, conforms to the image of the Holy One. You want to bear fruit, do you not? Then we seek to supplement our faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and on and on. But the holiness also leads to assurance. By the way, that's a G2 in your outline. The first one, GI or G1, it was fruitfulness. I gave you just three slots where you had to fill out an answer. Okay. Second one here is assurance. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Peter suggesting election by works righteousness? No, of course not. This is the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election, which I'll be preaching in about 30 minutes. God does not look down the corridors of time sees who will believe, and then elects them on that basis. God, you could say, looks down the corridors of time, sees no one believing, and says, well, I guess it's all up to me. I'll have to make a covenant of salvation. And the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit make a covenant from eternity past, called the Pactum Salutis, the covenant of salvation, according to which God will save a people who are headed to hell. So Peter is certainly not suggesting some kind of election through your own works righteousness. You don't contribute anything. Your former life was dead. You need life. It's the same divine power that grants you Everything you need for life and godliness, that gives you that, self, that uh, um, life of salvation to begin with. But what we see here is that as we are bearing fruit, God is using that fruit bearing as uh, just evidence of our salvation. The whole topic is quite large about uh, how can we be assured of our salvation And there's a chapter of that in the Confession of Faith, if you're interested in in reading that. The primary way that we are assured of our salvation is by looking to Christ. But that doesn't mean that that's the only way. It's just that's that's the way that if you had any doubt, you look to Christ who saves. But there are other ways, secondary ways. And Peter says, look to the fruit. He says, I don't want you to fall. I want you to practice these qualities. And if you practice these qualities, depending upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, if you do this, then you'll be assured 
of an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, there is a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. The godly love God. The godly love to keep his commandments. The godly depend upon God for all of life and godliness. We should not then be surprised if God assures us that we are his as we supplement the faith with virtue, self-control, steadfastness, brotherly affection, godliness, love, knowledge. Holiness produces uh, assurance, and finally, steadfastness, stability. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter wants them to remember. He knows he's going to die. He wants them to remember the grace of God, the the. Uh, precious and very great promises of God. He says, as long as I have breath, I'm going to keep stirring you up to remember. And I'm going to make sure that when I'm gone, you'll remember. How will, he, how will he make sure? By giving them this letter. Yes. Remembering what? Remembering the gospel. Remembering Christ. Remembering what he has done. Remembering God and how he makes covenant and keeps covenant. Why does Peter want to remind them always? Because though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I I want you to know them. I want you to be more and more established in this truth. I want you to be stable. I want your faith to... I want you to know by faith that your faith rests on the rock, which is Christ. That firm foundation... How does remembering stir us up? How does remembering the gospel stir us up? Okay. So as we remember the gospel, we are stirred up with hope. Yeah, good. Okay, Christ died for us so we can live for him. Good. Are we tempted to forget the great truths of God's word? That's what Satan wants, yes. Certainly, the Israelites forgot many times. Absolutely. Peter, in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, does talk about the trials that the saints will experience. And what does Paul say? Let us figure out how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. So we need to be stirred up. And one way we can stir ourselves up and stir others up is by remembering the gospel. Because we are tempted to go back to the former life. We are tempted to forget. And Peter says, I don't want you to forget this is, the very, this is your very life. You need to remember. And as long as I have breath, you will remember. 
And when I don't have breath, you'll remember because you will read this letter. And you will share this letter with others. They need this remembrance, this reminder, even after the apostle has died, because they will not, they cannot always depend upon Peter. Remember that the, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, the prophets and apostles are the foundation, Christ being the, the cornerstone. The foundation will be laid, and once it is laid, it is not laid again. The church will have to then rest on that foundation. The apostles will die. They will not have a, a word from God through the apostles verbalized, as, uh, as the saints in the Old Testament depended. The scripture is written down. That's what the next section is about. And we'll turn to that next week. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for the time to consider your word. We pray that we would both remember our former lives, how we were steeped in sin, enslaved to sin, and how you by grace rescued us. Help us, Lord, also to remember that grace, the, the great the precious and very great promises that you have given to us, your people, that you have given to us by your gracious and divine power. We do not deserve a thing of your grace, but we are so thankful for it. Help us, Lord, to avail ourselves of this grace that we might become uh, more and more partakers of the divine nature in conformity to Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.